You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Job, chapter 42. And I've been so grateful to hear from many of you about your appreciation for the book of Job over these past few weeks. This is a tough book, and uh, I wasn't quite sure how God might work in our church through it over these past few weeks, but as we're now on the other side of this book, and I I look back on the testimonies that I've received uh, verbally, through email, through text, through Facebook, uh, I look back on those, and it's just another affirmation to me of the power of the Bible, the power of the Word of God. There are no filler books in the Bible. As the Scripture says elsewhere, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All Scripture, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Job chapter 42, and we're going to start in verse 7, and if you'll Stand with me in honor of the reading of the words of our God. God's Word says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams... And go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers." And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons for generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Father, have mercy on us who are sinners and who are weak and needy and desperate for your grace. Father, have mercy on an imperfect preacher, and have mercy on imperfect ears and imperfect hearts who will hear your word this morning. Father, we can't do anything without your help. 
I can't preach without your help, and we can't listen to your word without your help. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and open eyes and open ears so that we may listen and heed and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, it's been quite a journey going through the book of Job. And these past couple of months, we have seen Job suffering immeasurably. And yet, through it all, despite some dark moments, despite even some sinful moments, Job has held on to God, and the devil has been proven wrong. The devil had accused Job of serving and loving God only because God had blessed him with health and wealth and prosperity, and that if those things would be taken away, Job would curse God and abandon him. And, of course, the accusation behind that challenge questions not simply Job's faith, but it questions God's sufficiency. Was God in and of Himself, by Himself, good enough to satisfy and sustain Job? We need to know the answer to that question, and sufferers especially need to know the answer to that question. And God does something incredible. He does two things. He permits Satan to take all of those blessings away But after God takes away those things in chapters 1 through 37, which leads to all of this suffering, God then gives Job something. God uh, gives Job more of God. We've seen this in the last two messages as God reveals more of Himself to Job. God displays more of His person to him. Job grows in his understanding of God, and he encounters God relationally in a way that he never has before. And suddenly, after experiencing God and knowing Him, not just knowing about Him, but really knowing Him on a personal level, deeper than before the suffering began, Job's transformed. In the midst of his suffering, Job has struggled to the point of being angry with God and questioning God and doubting God's wisdom and doubting His goodness. But now, suddenly, after this amazing encounter with God, Job is a changed man. As he says in verse 5, you can back up in chapter 42, and he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. When you consider all of Job's sufferings, the thing that hurt Job the deepest was the fear that he had lost God. Job thought his sufferings were evidence that God was no longer his friend, was no longer for him. And frankly, that pained him even more than the loss of his health and his wealth and his children. And when Job realizes that not only hasn't he lost God, but he now knows God relationally more than ever, Job is content and at peace and is satisfied with God. And he comes to that place while sitting on the ash heap with pus running from his infected sores, with friends who are slandering him, with money and possessions gone, and with children dead. It's important to realize that he reaches that point before verse 10, before the restoration. And when Job gets to this point of humble awe and wonder and repentance in chapter 42, guess what? The devil loses. The devil had asked in chapter 1, does Job serve God for nothing? Does Job love God for nothing? Is he all in for God, for nothing but God alone? If a man loses everything, 
and he has God, does he really have more than enough? And Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, tells us that the answer is absolutely. No question about it. So Satan is humiliated, God is exalted, and Job, in spite of his loss, experiences great gain because the value of knowing God more and the value of being and deepening fellowship with Him is worth more than whatever he might lose in the process. Having God is that good and that worthwhile. And so now we come to the epilogue of this great book, and and there are at least five things I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see in this final section of Job. There's probably more. You can come up with more. But there's at least five crucial things that I would like us to consider this morning. Really five uh, crucial, critical components to gospel truth that we see in this epilogue. The first thing is God's burning anger towards sinners. God's burning anger towards sinners. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, this doesn't mean that everything Job said was right. We've already seen how some of the things he said was very wrong. But Job, despite some of the wrong things he said, had a heart that was longing for God. And out of that heart came words that anticipated God as Redeemer. That anticipated God's vindicating him and even resurrecting him from the grave. We've seen Job's words of humility at the beginning of chapter 42, full of awe and wonder for God. And last, but definitely not least, Job maintains that his suffering was not connected to past sins. That was at the heart of the debate between Job and the three friends. And so God now has come in and he settles the debate and says, Job is right, you three are dead wrong. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, despite their pious talk, were totally off base and totally ignorant and full of erroneous theology. They had one explanation for Job's suffering. You're suffering, Job, because you've sinned. That was the essence of their theology and their characterization of how God dealt with people. You do bad, you suffer. God's God's getting you for your sin. You do good, and you prosper. God will bless you because of your goodness. The badder you are, the bigger the suffering. The gooder you are, the, the better you are, the bigger the blessing. And that kind of theology is still around today. You go to a Christian bookstore and you'll, you'll see shelves of that kind of garbage written by super wealthy preachers who hold themselves up as proof that the system works. I'm being blessed because I'm awesome. Be awesome like me and watch that bank account grow and watch that cancer disappear. But if you're poor and sick, oh man, something must be wrong with you. Uh, Something must be wrong with your faith. You better repent, and then if you repent, things will get better. And folks, that kind of theology is as old as the book of Job. And such a theology leads to a pompous, sinful, arrogant, self-righteous attitude because if you've got stage four cancer and I'm at the peak of health, the implication is not only that you must be some sinful, heinous person, 
But it also means that I'm better than you. That, that God is more pleased with me than he is with you. And it makes me callous and insensitive and indifferent to your suffering. And have we not seen that in, in, in the, the friends of Job and how they so cruelly treat him? God is angry with Eliphaz and his two friends because they have spread false doctrine, false teaching about God. And God steps in to set the record straight and to publicly declare their theology to be false. This is a very serious situation. This is not just academics. Because that kind of teaching, the teaching of the three friends, that kind of teaching left uncorrected could later on make the gospel invisible. If there is no place for innocent suffering in your theology, no place for a God who may allow the suffering of the righteous for his own good purposes, then guess what? You've totally hamstrung the gospel. The gospel which has at its centerpiece a man who is perfectly innocent and perfectly righteous, nevertheless suffering immeasurably because God decreed that it should be so. And you must believe and place your trust in that innocent sufferer to be saved. So the kind of theology that the three friends are spewing is not just erroneous, it's hellish. It's graceless. The three friends misrepresented God. They didn't tell the truth about God and, uh, with, their, with their teaching, and, and that is sin, and it makes God angry. And this burning anger that God has against the three friends is really just an example of how God feels about the sins of humanity in general. Scripture says in Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who is angry with the wicked every day. Now, that's a very politically incorrect thing to say in America today, don't you think? That God is is angry with sinners. You see, the God of America, the God of popular culture, is a God who affirms and approves and rubber stamps whatever we want to do. My friend Peter goes out and preaches to, to, to lost people in Athens, and you encounter that God a lot out there. My God is just for me. doesn't matter what I do. He's, he's kind of like a doting grandfather. That's the God of America. He's always in our corner. But Psalm 711 says God is angry with sinners. Why? Because God is a righteous judge. God is king of the universe. God is the lawgiver of the universe, and when man sins, we have broken God's law, which means we must pay the price for that. We we recognize in our own human society, with our own human laws, that concept. The greater the offense, the greater the price. And sin is rebellion, it's treason against the king of the cosmos, a king who's given us life and love and so many good things, and all sin is, is treason against that Good king. There is no greater offense than that. God is angry with sin. God is angry with sinners. And we see an example of that here in Job in regards to God's attitude towards the three friends. But that's not all we see in the epilogue of Job. Uh, We also see God's abundant grace 
towards sinners. God's abundant grace towards sinners. Look again at verse 7. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. See, God's anger at sin is not the whole story. We also see here God's desire to forgive sinners and be in relationship with them. What we see here is God's grace. Now, what's grace? What is grace? A great definition of grace is actually buried right here in the middle of verse 8, where God says that Job will pray for these three friends, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. That's grace. Where God does not deal with us according to our folly, according to our foolishness. Now, folly in the Bible, and especially in the wisdom literature, and Job is considered part of the, the wisdom genre in the Bible, folly is, is not simply, is not merely being uh, dim-witted. Instead, being a fool is a moral condition. It's a sinful, rebellious condition You can be the smartest man in the world and be a fool, according to the Scriptures. And God is telling these friends of Job, I will not deal with you according to your folly, according to your foolishness, according to your sins. I will not give you what you deserve. Now there is, I don't know if you caught this, but there is a a dark irony in this when you consider the false theological system of Job's friends. Eliphaz and his two cohorts firmly believed in a system where everyone got exactly what they deserved all the time. If you're bad, you get God's wrath. If you're good, you get God's blessing. What you deserve, you get. Now that sounds, in one sense, very appealing. That that sounds attractive. That sounds very American. You work hard, you do good, you do what's right, good will come right back to you. You do bad, and you'll get yours. But friends, that's the last thing you should want. If the system of the three friends was true, if you always get what you deserve, then when God appeared in that whirlwind, in Job chapter 38, the very first thing he would have done would have been to utterly consume Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar in his wrath. He would have immediately cast them into hell. Period. End of the book. Friends, no one would want to get what they deserved if they knew what they deserved. You see, we all tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We all tend to think of ourselves as the good guys. We, we, we tend to think of ourselves as more righteous than we really are. But the Scriptures say that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the ultimate expression of that death penalty is hell. That the final prison for those who want nothing to do with God will be a place where they won't enjoy a relationship with that God. It's eternal incarceration, eternal banishment. Now, if no one does good, if all have sinned, 
And if the wages of sin is death and hell, then all deserve hell. Which means if the theological system of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar is correct, then all of us are going there. But God is not only a God of justice, but He is a God of grace. God is a God who does not deal with sinners according to their folly. God is a God who loves to give sinners what they don't deserve. The question is how? How can a God of justice show loving grace and mercy to sinners who deserve death? Well, he does it through substitution and mediation. Look with me at verse 8. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. In the Old Testament, we see this a lot, in the Old Testament, slain animals serve as a covering for the sins of people. And when Eliphaz and his friends have these bulls and rams killed, when, when, when they have their throats slit and then consumed by flames... It's a graphic way of them acknowledging that they themselves are sinners, that they themselves deserve death, that they should get what those animals got, that they themselves deserve to be totally consumed and burned up by the wrath of God. It's an act of humility, which is something that these three friends desperately need, by the way. So this is a wonderful thing for them to do this, to acknowledge this. It's recognition that if they are to receive mercy while still having their sins paid for, they need a substitute to represent them, to bear their sins on their behalf and die in their place. And they also need a mediator. The the sinner needs a righteous man approved and accepted by God who will be an intercessor, a go-between between God and man. And how humbling, so much irony here in this, this section, how humbling it must have been For these three friends who at one time regarded themselves as so pious, believing that through their own righteousness they would receive good things from God, now having to bow low to God, realizing that in truth they deserve worse than what Job has been getting. And if they are to stand before God, if they are to live free from the fear of God's wrath, they are not going to be able to do it based on their own goodness and their own righteousness. What they need is exactly what every single sinner needs, and that's grace and substitution. Ultimately, I'm sure most of you know that those Old Testament sacrificial animals were insufficient. Scripture says in The book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A mere animal cannot be an adequate representative for sinful man. The the purpose of the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament was to illustrate and create anticipation for the one to come who could take away sins. Scripture says that redemption from sins comes through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist looks at and points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord Jesus, who though God became a man, and as a man he could be our representative. And as one who is perfect and holy, who owed no sin debt himself, could then pay for our debts that we owe God. On the cross, 
the sin of man was placed on Jesus. And that anger, that holy justice, that wrath that God reserves for people like Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and you and me was poured out on Christ. And so all who place their trust in God's provision for a suffering, sin-bearing substitute will receive grace and mercy. And why? Why would, why would God do this? He doesn't have to do this. Why? Well, there's all kinds of reasons. We could do a whole sermon on why. But I'll give you one reason. Lamentations chapter 3 says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. And just as the Old Testament sacrificial animals were insufficient and imperfect, so were the Old Testament mediators. Job here serves as a mediator, praying to God and interceding on behalf of his three sinful friends. But he himself is a sinner. And he himself cannot be a mediator forever because eventually he dies. Job, standing in the gap between God and man, points us to Jesus Christ, who's God's perfect and final mediator between God and man. It's Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And this mediator, though he died, he rose from the dead. And he serves as an ongoing, eternal mediator for his people. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Consequently, he, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. But notice something else that we see in this epilogue as well. We see God's vindication of his servant. God's vindication of his servant. For 29 chapters, Job has been attacked by Satan. He has suffered immeasurably... His family and those in the community have despised and shunned and rejected him. His three friends have continuously slandered him. So is Satan, by the way. But his three friends continuously insist that that Job must be some awful, rebellious sinner because of his intense suffering. He must be a hypocrite. He must be hiding some doozy of a sin somewhere. Surely Job cannot be one of God's people because of everything he's going through. Surely Job is rejected by God. It's obvious. That's what Eliphaz and his friends were thinking the whole time. But God turns the tables. He tells them, look at verse 7, For you have not spoken of me what is right as my what? As my servant Job has. Not as my, as this, you know, low life has, as my servant has. God vindicates Job. You didn't think that he was serving God. You didn't think that he was righteous. Guess what, Eliphaz, Bildad, and and Zophar? He's my servant. He's mine. Four times in verses 7 and 8, God refers to Job as his servant. And look at verse 8. God says, my servant Job shall pray for you. Again, more irony. How humbling this must have been for the three friends. They condemn Job as unrighteous. And look, now they have to go through Job as a mediator to have access to God. I love it. 
All along, Job has been the special, righteous, suffering servant of God, despised and rejected by men. And this same rejected, suffering servant now becomes an instrument by which these three friends are being reconciled to God. It foreshadows Christ, does it not? Whom the prophet Isaiah calls God's suffering servant, despised, rejected. And this same Jesus, through his suffering, becomes the man who saves the world. The one who was mocked and spit upon. The one who people said, surely, surely God is against this man. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. This one despised and rejected. This one Peter preaches about in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, where he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, who, because of his suffering, would have led many to think that he was a wretched sinner abandoned by God, is vindicated by God through his resurrection from the grave. After the shame and humiliation of the cross comes vindication and exaltation and the public declaration that Jesus is the servant, is the beloved Son of God, with whom the Father is pleased. The vindication of Job points forward to the vindication of Christ. And the vindication of Christ is the guarantee that all who belong to Christ will one day be vindicated. All of God's people, all who are in Christ, even if we suffer in this life, even if we are despised and rejected and mocked and persecuted, even martyred for our faith, If you are sitting in this room this morning and you belong to Christ, you have a day to look forward to where you too will be raised from the dead and you will hear those words that all who love God long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We also see in the epilogue God's reconciliation of sinners. Notice what happens as God reconciles Job to himself and as God reconciles the three friends to himself. God wants Job to pray for these three friends who have slandered him, who have been cruel to him, who have said, your kids are dead because they deserve it, because they've done something wrong. God wants Job to pray for these people who have tormented him. And Job does not say, I don't think so. Forget that. Uh, Didn't you hear, God, what they just said? They're on their own, God. I'm not praying for them. They've been jerks to me, and I'm not interested in their restoration. They can go to hell for all I care. I wonder how many of us have felt that way when we feel stabbed in the back and betrayed by those we thought were our friends. That's not what Job does. That's not how Job responds. Look at verse 9. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job, Job prays for them immediately. Job has a loving and accepting and forgiving spirit about him. 
As you think back on what went down between Job and these three friends, as you think back on the bitter words exchanged, and let's, let's be honest, bitter words were flying back and forth on, between both sides. And it just wasn't one-sided. As you think back on all that, this was a situation that could have easily, easily destroyed the relationship forever. No, no Christmas cards coming. No, no invitations for Thanksgiving. This could have easily ruined the friendship. But instead what we see here is a principle of the gospel lived out. When men are reconciled to God, then they become reconciled to one another. That's what the gospel does. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 as he considers how God, through Jesus, has redeemed Jews and Gentiles. Two groups that hated and despised one another that under normal circumstances would have been at each other's throats. They are instead sitting next to one another in the same church. And Paul says to them, For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I wonder if there's anyone in this room that is harboring anger or resentment or bitterness or bad attitude or a lack of forgiveness or lovelessness towards anyone else in this room. If so, you need to recognize that to persist in that kind of condition, that kind of ongoing hard-heartedness towards a brother or a sister, that's about as anti-gospel as you can get. There are not too many things you can do that are more anti-gospel than not loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, having a hostile, ungracious disposition towards them. But we see here in Job a picture of the power and the beauty of gospel reconciliation. God has lavished much grace upon Job. God has lavished much patience on Job. And God has lavished much forgiveness upon Job. And now in the overflow of the grace that God has liberally poured out upon him, he's able to turn around and do the exact same thing towards these men who have wounded him so much. God help Harbin's church to excel at such lavish grace-giving. And may it start with me. We also see something else in the epilogue. God's restoration of what was lost. And look at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, go down to um, verse 12, and you'll see that doubling. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. That's exactly twice the numbers that you see in chapter 1. Now, some people trip up on verse 13. Verse 13, he he had also seven sons and three daughters. I, I think 
you know, people trip up on this sometimes because they, they say, well, that's not double. Well, we see the doubling of animals and wealth, but in chapter 1 it says God has 10 children, so why not in chapter 42, 20 children? Why doesn't he double that? Now, I think what's going on here is that there is an assumption that the 10 children in chapter 1, though dead, are still alive. They're alive in heaven. They're still Job's children. And so now Job has 10 more on top of that. So he's got 20 children total. 10 alive on earth, 10 in heaven. Notice the author gives the names of the daughters. They're given a special status. He doesn't tell us the names of the boys. The boys are anonymous. The spotlight here is put on the ladies. Verse 14. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima. That, that means dove. The name of the second, Keziah, that seems to be a type of perfume. And the name of the third, Karen Hapuk, I think that has something to do with eyeshadow. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. That's unusual. This was the patriarchal period, and it was common for women to kind of get the short end of the stick when it came to the inheritance. But here we see a wonderful countercultural generosity and acceptance on the part of Job towards his daughters. It's as if the amazing acceptance and the lavish generosity that the Lord has bestowed on him is just overflowing and he pours it out on his family. And all the children, male and female, have equal status in the family. They all have a generous share in the inheritance of their father. And Job here is imaging the kindness of his father in heaven, who shows no unfair partiality in his family. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that in the family of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are all Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Check it out. Heirs, according to the promise... They're all heirs, the Jew, the Greek, the man, the woman, the free, and the slave. All heirs in God's household. How revolutionary and how countercultural the gospel is. Now, what's the point of the, the author sharing Job's restoration? The point can't be... Humble yourself like Job, and you'll get really rich and live a long life like Job. Can that be the point? That, that can't be the point. Because that would totally undermine everything else that came before. One of the main points of the book of Job is that being righteous doesn't guarantee you immediate health, wealth, and prosperity. So that can't be the point at the end of the book. The author of Job isn't an idiot. He knows what he's written the past 41 chapters. You know, just like we're not told all the reasons for Job's suffering, we're not told all the reasons for Job's blessings. God wisely and sovereignly chooses to take away and give as he sees fit. Isn't that one of the, one of the points of the book of Job? And, and, and I also think this is simply a, a picture of God's lavish grace. Grace is not just not getting what you deserve. It's also getting what you don't deserve. It's gifts. And those gifts can come in many forms, from the hand of God. 
But I also think we see in Job a part of an ongoing pattern in the Bible that points to a greater reality. The book of Job begins in an idyllic, peaceful setting, doesn't it? You have peace and harmony and order in Job's world. Everything is safe and everything is comfortable and secure and prosperous. It's almost Eden-like. But not long after that, the devil disrupts that peace. And that paradise-like world of Job morphs into a world of pain, sorrow, frustration, disruptive relationships, and apparent disorder. But despite Job's suffering, we learn that his suffering is not evidence that he is unrighteous. On the contrary, he is suffering because he's righteous. Another irony. But despite his suffering, God has him on a specific path. And on the other side of the suffering, we find the devil defeated and humiliated. And there is now, at the end of the book, a return to paradise. But this time it's better, as is evidenced by Job receiving double the blessing that he had in the beginning. The book of Job is a microcosm of a bigger story. God originally created this world as paradise. And there was harmony and order in the, in the world and perfect relationships between God and man and man and man. And the devil invaded that situation, led man into sin, and disrupted that paradise. Indeed, paradise was lost as now the world is full of pain and suffering and sorrow and death. And the fact that you, I'm talking to you now, the fact that you are going through difficulty and tribulation is not proof that you're not one of God's people. It's not proof that you've sinned in some specific way where it comes back around you like karma or something. It's not proof that God is getting back at you for something you've done. Scripture tells us instead that the path of suffering is the normal path for the people of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, 1 Peter 4.12. It's not strange, Peter says. This is the normal Christian life. Simon, Simon, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. The devil is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. The book of Job is a book about the normal Christian life. The Apostle Paul preached a message of encouragement to sufferers in the book of Acts. In Acts 14.22, it says that Paul strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, why would that be an encouraging word? Think about that. That kind of seems to be a bummer of a message. Why was it strengthening and encouraging for the disciples to hear that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God? What's so encouraging about that? I think it was encouraging because it reminded them that the path to entering into and experiencing the fullness of God's kingdom takes us through tribulation, 
takes us through suffering. It's the normal Christian life. Paul's message is the exact opposite of Job's three friends. Job's three friends are like, you're suffering, uh, so, so you must be off course. But Paul's like, you're suffering, don't freak out. That's the normal course to your final destination. Suffering now gives way to glory later. That's the Christian life. There's difficulty now, but that's not the end of the road. Something better's coming, something better not only than your life now, but something better even than what Adam and Eve lost in paradise ages ago. Job's blessings in the end outweighed the blessings in the beginning, but the path to final blessing took him through hardship. But that hardship did not last forever. The road through suffering to glory is the normal path for all of God's children including God's Son. Indeed, the Scriptures urge suffering believers to not ultimately fix their eyes on Job for their encouragement, but to fix their eyes on Jesus. As it says in Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, there's something in the distance that's coming. There's, there's joy to be experienced who for the joy that was set before him, but he's got, he's got to go through something to get there, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Job's story ends well, but it ends bittersweet. It ends with Job's death. But that's not how Jesus' story ends. Jesus is the very best example of temporary suffering giving way to eternal glory later. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus' story ends not with suffering and death, but with everlasting glory and joy and exaltation and vindication. And if that is what God has in store for Jesus then all of us who are in Jesus, on the other side of suffering, have nothing but glory and joy and exaltation and vindication to look forward to. That's ultimately where your story is going also. If the road of glory, where glory is at the end of the road, if that leads through suffering, if suffering is a part of that road, then we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be surprised that That's the road for believers whom God has purposed would be conformed to the image of His Son. Makes sense. Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. So we're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We want that, right? I want to be like Jesus. That's my heart's desire. Great. That should be your heart's desire. But what does it mean? 
to be conformed to the image of His Son. Part of that included suffering for Jesus, and it will include suffering for us, but glorification is at the end of the road. That's your destiny as a believer, and your suffering does not thwart God's purposes for you. It actually furthers them as God works all things together for your good, so do not lose hearts. There will come a day when the tribulation will end, where the whirlwind of suffering will pass, and we'll be face to face with Christ. And surely we will say, alongside Job, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And we will live in eternal awe and wonder and joy as that question that the devil asked in the beginning of the book of Job is wonderfully and finally answered by us. Do we serve God for nothing else but for God's sake alone? Is He alone worthy? Is He alone sufficient and all satisfying? Is He everything we need? And and we will know on that day that the answer will be unequivocally yes. We will know that for certain as the temporary present suffering gives way to everlasting glory as we come into the full possession of the treasure above all treasures, Christ Jesus Himself. Therefore, in light of all of that, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would help us on the road to suffering. And you will help us to not sink into despair, but to recognize that what is going on is not you destroying us, but it is the work of Christ's conformity that you are doing in our hearts and in our lives. Father, help us to put our hope and trust in you in the times of deepest suffering. Help us to not put our trust in man. Help us not to put our trust in human relationships. Help us not to put our trust in money and in houses and in the applause of men. Help us to hope in God. In Jesus' name, amen.